Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good stuff. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in again to this week's edition of Unhedge. And I have the honor of being here this week with Mr. David Birch. David, wonderful as always to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So what brings you to Singapore this week? Well, I'm here for Money 2020, which is the uh, the big fintech conference. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I chaired a couple of the sessions and a couple of the panels and things like that. So, yeah, it was fun. And what was the takeaway this week? Uh, my takeaway, really, I was very interested in the stuff that's going on in the wallet space, uh-huh. uh, you know, because of the scale of the Asian wallet business um, and the the sort of different dynamics of that business here. Because, mm-hmm. you know, here you're, to- I wouldn't exactly say Trojan horse, but here you're talking about payments as a, as a not in a business in their own right, in a way, but as a way to establish you know, the equivalent of footfall mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for other services. Um, and that's really interesting to me to see that develop. Mm-hmm. I was interested in some of the technology stuff as well, because I'm always curious to see what's going on, particularly in the kind of ID, authentication, compliance, EKYC, mm-hmm. AML sort of space. I'm interested in that too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's not pretend like all conferences, it's a, it's a chance to catch up with some old friends as well. So Good stuff. Been a very tiring week, but it was fun. Well, thank you. We caught you definitely on the tail end of it. So I'm surprised that you <laughs> yes, my biorhythms were starting to slide a little bit, but uh, I had plenty of coffee, so I'm okay. No, let's talk a little bit about the identity stuff. We talked about this earlier today offline. You know, and what's the progression that you've seen relative to when you published the book? And, and I think we're one of the catalysts to highlight this in, in the industry. Has have things progressed the way that you would have expected? That's very kind of you to say that. Thank you. Um, Look, I mean, when I originally wrote the book, it was, um, it was to, you know, to some extent, it was out of frustration. I thought I had some better ideas about how the identity stuff should work. I, I assumed that the size of the identity problem, you know, because the lack of a digital identity infrastructure has become a fundamental friction mm-hmm. in the world of sort of electronic commerce, electronic finance. And, and, you know, and at the same time, you have identity theft and whatever sort of out of control. So I thought the problem was so big that people would be just aching to do something about it. This turns out not to be true. Things have sort of drifted for the last couple of years. Uh, but in recent times, you've seen, for example, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, last month called for, you know, the introduction of some sort of digital identity for the financial services sector. 
You've seen the head of Europol talk about the you know the money that's spent on KYC AML versus the proportion of dirty money that gets intercepted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a good cost benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've seen you know th- th- actually the latest figures came out of the UK this morning about you know account account fraud and all this kind of stuff. So. It could be that things are changing now, not just because the magnitude of the problem, mm-hmm. but because the sort of dynamics of it have shifted. It started to be seen as being not a problem of an individual bank or an ind- you know the way you do your credit card, or it started to be seen as an infrastructural problem. Now, if that was just a standalone problem by itself and there was nothing around it, the tendency towards conservatism in amongst banks and regulators, which is in many cases to be lauded, would just become a boat anchor on the whole thing. But at the same time, of course, you see other people coming into that space now. So you, the problem isn't going away. Someone's going to have to fix it. And if it isn't going to be fixed by you know, banks and regulated institutions and, and governments and so on, then it's going to get fixed by Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple or some other new startup. Mm-hmm. coming out of that space. And so I think there's sort of renewed interest from what you'd call the mainstream financial services sector to get hold of the concept of digital identity and actually do something with it. We're, we're, there was also talk at the conference this year and also at the Singapore FinTech Festival regarding financial inclusion. Is digital identity more applicable in terms of a use case to that demographic than, than the existing folks that are already banked and established? Well, you, you know, you may, me, you may accuse me of having a bit of a narrow prism on this sort of thing. But I mean, I do have a little bit of experience in the inclusion space. And I think social inclusion is the precursor. If you, if you want to have financial inclusion, if I want to bring you into the financial system, if I want to offer you services, if I want to, if I want to let's, you know, track what you're doing and so on, well, there has to be a you to mm-hmm. begin with. So if you have no, uh, if you have no formal identity documents, you have no passports or driving licenses or no identity in the bureaucratic sense, then we have to find some other way of delivering services to you. You know, in my book, I pointed towards social media mm-hmm. as as the mechanism for for achieving that. But, you know, there are other ways you can do it. You can, you know, for example, in Africa, the telecoms route is very popular. Right. One of the first sort of, I would say, one of the first sort of kind of unexpected things that came out of MPEZ all those years ago was people began to use the transaction histories as a substitute for more sort of conventional reputational scores or indicators. So so if if I want to deal with you, I want to do business with you, and I see your M-Pesa history, and I see that you send the money to the school every month, you send the money up country to your wife every Friday, that tells me more about you and more about whether I should do business with you or lend money to you than, frankly, would some government document which says, you know, you're Mr. X and you live at this address. You, you see what I'm driving mm-hmm, at? So, mm-hmm. so I think the sort of social inclusion is the precursor to the financial inclusion. If I, and, and remember also, because of the way the whole kind of thing works, you know, if you, if you read any of the, 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 the books that have been written in, in some detail about this space, the, the, the bumper sticker version is it's expensive to be poor. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, isn't, it isn't just that we want financial inclusion because we want the financial industry to be able to sell these people things. It's we want financial inclusion because it makes life better for everybody. And so social inclusion is the platform that sits underneath all of that. Where, 
one of the interesting things to that point, and it's interesting you bring up M-Pesa. So if we look at, at, to your point, in terms of the social aspect of it, if we look at it in terms of the, the telco aspect of it, and then maybe looking at it through the wallet perspective, where technically none of them require a, at least not yet, and correct me if I'm wrong, a regulatory framework for somebody to participate in either one of those three. It's been interesting to see where, where does that identity sit and, and who, because again, using the Facebook analogy you gave, we could draw a lot of conclusions from the information from that. Do we need the telco and do we need a wallet? And at the same time, we're seeing wallet providers saying, well, we can provide that identity and not necessarily have a bank. And the same thing on the telco side. You know, you know the telco position, I think, is a little bit puzzling. I mean, I don't have any incredible wisdom to deliver on that point, but it, it has seemed to me for a very long time that telcos would be the obvious people to be the kind of underlying anchor to all of this. The obvious reason, which is that they have the tamper-resistant hardware. Right. If, if you're going to have some kind of entity, you, you know, you have to have real security anchoring this identity infrastructure. You know, there's different arguments about how this is achieved, but, you know, you could say there are limits to what you can do in software because it can be copied and so on. The SIM card is fundamentally different. I can't copy your SIM card. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I, can't, mm -hmm. I can't take it over. So I can't take it over without bribing people on the side of the mm -hmm. token. <clears throat> so, I, I mean, for many years, I just assumed that the telcos would provide some sort of identity infrastructure and that third parties, e.g. banks and others, would provide the identities. Right. You know, the, the things are separate in my head. You've got the rails and mm -hmm. you've got the cars that run on it. But somehow that never really materialized. Um, it didn't really turn into anything. Um, and the, I mean, you, you see a resurgence now. The, the big telcos in the US have just got together to form this project Verify. Mm -hmm. um, the GSMA's mobile connect has, has got some traction in certain places, but limited so far. So I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't rule that out. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, you can see why people begin to point to people like Facebook and LinkedIn I mean, an example I think of, one, you know, one of the guys that transferred over to New York. <clears throat> Actually, the same thing happened to me when I first worked in the US, but that was a long time ago. You know, I walked into the bank to open an account and they wouldn't give me an account. And I'm, mm -hmm. Well, hold on a second. I've been with Barclays in London for years. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, they treat you like you just got off the boat. A friend of mine um, transferred from London to, to New York and had these problems getting a New York bank account. They wouldn't give him a credit card because he doesn't have a US credit history. And all those years ago when I went there, a guy I was working with gave me very good advice, Security Pacific Bank in those days. He said, go to Security Pacific and borrow $5,000 that you don't need and then pay it back. Because okay. that, that will yeah. give you the, and that's what yeah, I did. The, the, whole yeah, thing was, sure. the whole thing was stupid. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I was talking to my friend about this the other day, I said, like, you know, if the bank looked at his LinkedIn profile, they would see, here's a guy who's a principal consultant at a consulting firm who has all of these references and what's this. You would lend him $5,000. Right. You wouldn't need to know anything about any other. You know what I mean? I'm not mm -hmm. exaggerating. I mean, if I, wanted, if I wanted to lend you $500, Facebook would tell me whether, you know. So, so I think we're in that kind of transition. And the impact in the financial sector is, I think, I hope I'm not over-egging the pudding, um, identity has gone up the agenda a bit and people are starting to see it in a more strategic context. Mm -hmm. How, uh, using this paradigm of, um, you know, let's say the, the between the 
social media in the traditional context, mobile, and uh, what we'll call the wallets. This reminds me of the analogy where it's not an analogy; it's actually what occurred. Remember when when the telcos in the to use the states used to have DSL. So the idea was that you would have high speed access through the telco, and they basically provided it as a just a just one service. And the unique thing was that the cable companies also offered the same service, but they were able to bundle it with with a bunch of other things. So you you'd be able to get your suite of channels, you'd be able to get quasi phone service. You know, so they the so is it as simple if we're looking at this model? Are the telcos committing the same mistake, where they're maybe thinking about it unilaterally and they don't understand that holistically, there's a portability or and or more of a content uh, or feature or service offering that needs to be bundled around? Uh, you know, look, I think that's right as an outsider, and, and and over the years I've done more than one, you know, advisory assignment with telcos looking at financial services. But you kind of run up against those Christiansen buffers each time, which is if your core business is selling minutes and somebody comes in and says, you know what, eventually the minutes thing is going to kind of tail off a bit and we'll saturate. We need to kind of start thinking of some value added services. Then inevitably the kind of capital that will be committed to those, I mean, to take any capital away from the core services to try this. So this is when you get this kind of codex up. And also, I think, and this can sound very rude, and I don't mean it to be because I know nothing about running a business, but it always did sort of strike me that quite a few of the people, like like to, to, to be a manager, to be a senior person in telco, a few years ago, it was not that hard. I mean, mobile phones walked out of the shops themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you had a kind of cadre of people who, who, who never had to really sit down and face strategic challenges because the business was easy. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the licenses and then set the printing presses running and just collected the money on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, you know, the, the transitions are hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of so, mm-hmm. but yes, of course you're right. You know, you've, you, 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 you have to find the location inside that new ecosystem that's springing up. I am almost, a, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that that should be something to do with identity and authentication and so on. But, who, who am I against so many? Well, the, the and, and to your point, uh, the the Sapnandu Mahanti, who heads up the uh, fintech effort at the MAS, made a comment one time at a conference where he said that he said, from a credit worthiness perspective, you probably would want to look at what I was doing on Google to gain an appreciation for me as a counterpart. But at the same time, based on what I was doing at Google, you might not want me as as a counterpart because the information was so so wide in terms of what would ultimately be collected. It begs the question, why, given the information and and what they've been able to monetize just on, on advertising, you have a hesitancy on the part of the behemoths, like using Facebook again, where Facebook maybe is, could easily enter financial services in, in a very, in, in a WeChat context, yet they aren't. And there's been talk that the or theories that the reason why they haven't done it is because of the punitive effect of a regulatory framework. Is it going to exhibit the same growth characteristics? But at the same time, they they know your identity. They they can draw these characteristics from from your behavior online. Why wouldn't they do that? Why why wouldn't they? Well, look. For, well, actually, my Facebook profile has never been in my real name, so that's not true for everybody. But. Um... One of the reasons why I think, so, so I, I do see articles written from time to time that say, you know, the bank of Facebook could be, you know, the biggest bank in the world. And that's great. 
if I was Facebook, why would I want to be regulated and probed and monitored right. and so on? I mean, I make a ton of money uh, in a in a I wouldn't say a wild west, but in a less regulated environment. Facebook in Europe already has a, a payment institution license. You know, you don't need to be a bank to provide payment services and providing payment services, if the Asian wallet example is anything to go by, providing payment services gives you the foothold. And then once you have that foothold, then you can auction in more valuable, higher value financial mm -hmm. services. It, it, if I can see precisely who are the people that are spending all the money, I know who to target with, with mm -hmm. this stuff. So, so I would have thought, not being an expert on behemoth strategy, um, I would have thought that the obvious thing to do from Facebook's point of view would be to get into payments. I mean, they, they must be looking at what's going on with Amazon Pay, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. would be to get into payments and then use that foothold to make money, you know, just getting a skimming a little bit off the top mm -hmm. of all the other people coming into that place. I, I don't see them going into banking. Maybe they will. I don't know. Let's assume for a second that the the we do have that digital identity created. So the, the and, and let's focus on the, the financial inclusion aspect of this. So we have an unbanked individual um, now in a position where, where they, they have that identity available to them. Who, who is the fiduciary to that person in terms of appropriateness? And one of the things I struggle with here is the, the they, they've now, they, they are now online and there's a lot of different models where, where, uh, uh, there's different micro loans that could be presented and, and different other fractionalized aspects of the industry. Where do the regulators step in and, and where do they also start acting on behalf of these users? I, I asked this and that we had a conversation with one of the folks on financial inclusion and they said that the, one of the biggest aspects of this was in educating these folks regarding financial services and, you know, are they capable of taking ownership of that identity and understanding what's being offered to them? Or is there another step that we need to do to actually educate them and make them aware of what they'd be participating in? You know, I, I've said a few, this is going to make me sound like a horrible person or at least more horrible than, than I actually am. But I, it, it's not transparently obvious to me that people are educatable. You know, you didn't, you didn't, you know, you go back to like the 60s, you didn't start educating people about seatbelts and then leave it up to them to make their own decisions about it. You got to a point where you, it's just too damn dangerous. Mm -hmm. So you just have to make it the law. that they. It, you don't give people information about seatbelts and let them make up their own mind, you know. If you, if you try to educate people about the sophisticated financial services, You'll end up, I think, with with disaster. You know, you'll end up with people being fleeced on an industrial scale. It's not the, you know, the, we we have to have infrastructure in this place. Like this, this is one of the things the cryptocurrency people don't understand. If the, in their sort of odd sort of crypto utopia where everybody mm -hmm. is their own bank and everybody's responsible for their own, isn't this great? No more institutions or whatever. Well, no, it isn't. Right. You know, I don't want to be responsible for those kind of things. I right. want a regulated institution to have to take care of that for me and behave on, you know, in the best way that, that, that supports me. I, I'm not sure about the education argument, I guess is my point. Mm -hmm. That sounds like I'm being so horrible about people. But I, I think I'm being realistic about the, the possibilities there. Oh, I don't think you're being cynical at all. I mean, we, we, regrettably now we're, we're 
we're in a place where we're actually more leveraged now than we were prior to the 0708 crisis you know, of, of GFC. So, I mean, we, we obviously haven't learned. We're seeing the same participants committing the same mistakes. And, 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 I, and it begs the question, you know, at the end of the day, I would take another cynical view and forgive me for having a political discussion, but we are so, if I, if I wear my U.S. hat, we are so anti-immigration, yet at the same time, we have a system that is effectively bankrupt. We need more taxpayers in the system. You have people that want to come to work to contribute to the system. And so when you look at the financial inclusion argument, there was, there was a, an economic argument in terms of marginal propensity to consume, where if you give a dollar to a homeless person, they'll spend it. Whereas if you and I received a dollar, we wouldn't do anything with it. We'd put it in a wallet and never, never think about it again. So as these, these people come online, to your earlier point, there is a definite economic outcome from that. And, and why wouldn't the government say, you know, forget about the, the laws. If but- I was a benign dictator in this space, which, by the way, might well be the optimal political arrangement for the new millennium. If I was a benign dictator in this place, I would take an axe to the existing KYC AML infrastructure, I would say. But we've built this infrastructure on this kind of Victorian yeah. notion. So, so we've built this huge wall and then we open the door and we let people inside and we try and keep the bad people out and the good people we let in. And when we let them in, um, in certain circumstances, we try to see what they're doing if it's more than $10,000 and all this sort of thing, right? But we don't live in, you know, we're not messing around with index cards in a file. Mm-hmm. We live in a world of AI, big data, machine learning. If the bad people are kept out, you don't know what they're doing. I mean, why would we do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I can well remember the example of, I mean, I know we're diverting it a little bit, but no, it's fine. But I remember, <laughs> you, you take the example of, of the Somali, this is one of my favorite examples. So there happens to be a big Somali population in the UK. So the UK Somalia remittance corridor is a very important corridor. It's a substantial fraction of Somali GDP. So you have your AML crackdown. And what happens is the banks, rationally, the banks withdraw service from the money transmitters going down. So now nobody living in the UK can send money to Somalia. So what, you think there's no money going to Somalia? Of course, there's money going to Somalia. It's just going in crates of cash flying out of Stansted Airport, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where nobody has any idea what's going on or where it's going to, rather than going through the electronic channels, where you at least can see where it's going. I mean, if I'm sending money every week to a cave in the Bora Bora Mountains, then you might want to send the police around to have a look at what I'm up to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in this world that we live in, a much better idea is not to have the wall to keep people out at all, but to let everybody in and then watch what they're doing, because now we have the capability to watch what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And if the machines spot these unusual patterns and so on, which, which by the way, they're very good at doing, I mean, so that's the thing that machines can actually do in that, then we can get law enforcement involved in a much more targeted way. So, so I think if you want to help those, I mean, again, I don't want to make a political point about undocumented people and so on, but if you want to, if you want to turn, you know, the, the economy into into something with more tax, more spending, and so on. Keeping people out of the financial system is not the obvious way to do it. Yep. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. And also the cost benefit analysis of the current system just doesn't. I think the the the, the guy that used to run Europol, who's a British guy, I think, presumably not for much longer, um, said a few months ago. If you look at, I can't remember what the numbers were, but if you look at the total amount of money that's spent on KYC AML in Europe. It's absolutely vast. Mm-hmm. 
And if you look at the you look at the proportion of, of illicit flows that they intercept, it's you know naught statistically. I mean, I think it's zero point one. It wouldn't even show up on a spreadsheet. It's nothing. Right. Well, if that was any other kind of business, you'd be like, well, hold on a second. This, you know, this the ROI doesn't look that great on this. So maybe mm -hmm. we should rethink it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would I would really look at doing it in a different way. So to to reflect on your point earlier about being a benign or a benevolent dictator, I mean, is everything that we're hearing from China all that bad? <laughs> I mean, as a You're Western, trying to get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> look. The Chinese social credit system, which integrates uh, these things, is to us extremely dystopian. But there are different cultural contexts to it. Um, and I sometimes do wonder if... On the train I take into London, uh, there's a carriage which is supposed to be the quiet carriage with no mobile phones. And that's where I like to sit, because right? when I'm going in, I'm reading or working or whatever. And there's always somebody in there yelling into a mobile phone, yep. like complete inanity stuff. And because I'm English, I'm too polite to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. punch them or whatever you do in America. <laughs> but in China, of course, their social people would report and their social credit would be knocked down. And once it goes down to a certain level, they wouldn't be allowed on the train anymore. To be frank, that sounds quite appealing to me. I agree. Um, I'm not sure if we should extend it into all areas of daily life. Um, but there is something to be said for nudging people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, into behaving themselves in these situations. You know, we, you, you can't comment on these things in a cross-cultural context because they're so they're so culturally rooted. I think it, it would make sense in in what I kind of think of the Anglosphere example. It would make sense to construct a more sophisticated version of a digital identity infrastructure, which had um, the privacy enhancing technologies at a core. And so, because we start from a different place. So, so we want a digital identity infrastructure that's just a comprehensive, that, that cuts the costs of all transactions and, and actually facilitates businesses that can't exist at the moment because, because the costs are simply too high. Mm -hmm. into that. But we would probably do it in a slightly different way. And I, I'll, I'll pick a silly example to illustrate this. So, Let's say uh, let's say I want to uh, I want to go into a bar and have a drink. Is it eighteen in Singapore? I don't know, or twenty one or something. Here in Singapore, yeah, I think now it's eighteen. Okay, states it's twenty one. So as every as every uh, book ever about identity will point out, there's a really big difference between proving to the bar that you're over eighteen and telling the bar who you are. Mm -hmm. And in general, the reason why you ask who people are is actually as a proxy into some other attribute that you're trying to establish. Am I allowed into this business room here? Mm -hmm. uh, am I allowed to have a drink at the bar? Am I allowed on the train? Am I allowed into the football stadium? Can I log onto this website? And we do it through proxies. And the problem with that is it means your identity is smeared everywhere um, and can be stolen and abused and, and so on and so forth. So if you have an infrastructure that has that mechanism built in, so I can prove to the bar that I'm over 18, without disclosing any personally identifiable information, everybody's better off. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that using the, the, you know, the cryptographic technologies that are available to us now, proving that you're over 18 without disclosing personal information is actually quite a trivial problem. That's easy to solve in mm -hmm. the cryptographic mm -hmm. space. Translating that into you know, the kind of social 
institutional regulatory structures is a little more difficult because you know the regulators aren't schooled in the cryptography and zero knowledge mm-hmm, proofs mm-hmm. and homomorphic encryption and so on and so forth. In fact, in fact, in many ways, I think the regulators don't understand just how powerful those new technologies are and what they can offer. But you, you see what I'm driving at. So we we would build an infrastructure, I think, in the Anglosphere. Uh, we would, should, ought, really should be getting on with it now. Build an infrastructure that has that kind of privacy stuff built in. When I am I allowed into this building should be the thing that the building can ask me. Right. Right. The building shouldn't be able to ask me who are you because it's none of the building's damn business. Mm-hmm. I went to we. I went to an office in New York uh, last time I was in New York, not that long ago, last month. And I went to check in. They had one of those carding machines for driving license. You had to check in, and the guy said, "Can you swipe your driver's license to check in?" And I'm like, "No." Well, first of all, because I don't have one because mm-hmm. I'm English mm-hmm. and I don't live in North Korea. I don't have to carry identity documents to walk down the street. Uh, and, but even if I did have a driving license, I'm not swiping it through your damn machine. What's so the janitor downstairs has now got a record of all of my intimate personal data. Right, like, right, this, right. this is ridiculous. Right. But, you know, the question should be asked. At, it's, it, you know, it's one of those shared office spaces. The building should be able to ask me, am I allowed in this shed? You know, it, who I am is none of its business. Now, if I get up to no good, right, so so... So I, I, I have this office and I, I, I do some horrible kind of thing and I cheat lots of people. I mean, let's say I'm an investment banker or something like that. And the police want to come and track me down. Well, then they can go to the person who issued the credential, the bank as it should be, and say, hey, whose person one, two, three, four, five, six? And the bank will say, well, it's Dave Birch. And by the way, he's on Madison and 59th at the moment because right. we have an app on his phone and know exactly where he is. Right. You know, at no point does the office building need to know who I am. So I think the idea of having this comprehensive infrastructure is right. I just think we should have a more sophisticated infrastructure that's kind of more rooted in the 21st century and the realities of, of modern interaction. Yeah, not to not to go too off then, but I will. But I mean, you know, Yuval Harari in, in uh, his books talked about the, the religion of money and, and how money eliminated a system of barter. And, and allowed us in a facilitated exchange in in in, uh, in that. And the key to that was trust uh, in that network. If we expand on your point a little bit more, the, the reality, and correct me if I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but, but if in fact identity was established, because what money removes, the physical currency removes, I don't have to trust you as a person because I have a dollar bill correct. that says in God correct. we trust. But what then becomes the role of the bank where if the underlying asset is no longer necessary as a medium of exchange, and to play devil's advocate with you, because I agree with you, then who's storing the identity? And is, and is that something that the well, private that, sector should be? Well, my argument is, is that's what the bank should be doing, right. right? So if you look at the proportion of my of my wealth, such as it is, which is in the bank, it's almost naught. Right. You know, not just because I don't have any money in the bank, but because even if I did have money, it wouldn't be in the form of a cash deposit in the bank. Right. It would be in the form of mortgages and shares and pensions mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. To some extent, conceptually, what's in the bank already is my identity, right. not my money. Right. Right. That's what the bank. It's a representation. Right. Yeah. And so, if you construct, if you construct uh, notions of a reputation economy around that, I think. I wouldn't point to Harari in this. There's actually there's another point he makes, uh, a related point he makes in Sapiens about the the 
the kind of shift when we began to think about things that didn't really exist, mm-hmm. like companies. Right, you right. Know? And I, I thought that's very interesting because yep. that, that also relates to identity in my conceptions. But I, in my book, I tended to look at the, I looked at, I was very interested in sort of social anthropology as a way of refracting some of my technological thoughts. And I think those guys, because of their, the way they look at these things, I think it's very helpful to people like me. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite, Jack Weatherford, the, so he, 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 he said, the fu- he was talking specifically about money, and he said the future of money is much more like its Neolithic past than it is now. Mm. And he was making the same point that Harari makes, which is when you're in the clan, I mean, that, that magical 150 number where mm-hmm. when you're in the clan, everything is about mutual cross obligations, right? I gave you that cow, so you need to put a roof on my house. Right, right. Okay? And we all remember that. And right. everybody knows that you're supposed to put the roof on my house right. at some point. And everybody remembers that cow is now your cow, not my cow. Right. We didn't have any deeds or whatever. It's just everybody remembers. And that doesn't scale, which is why you need money. Mm-hmm. Well, Things like 24-7, always on social media, actually mean that communal memory has come back. Right. It's just not in our heads anymore. It's on right. the social media. So it's like the clan is back. And if the clan's back, you don't need the intermediaries anymore because everybody can remember all of those cross-obligations mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And that sounds crazy that you wouldn't need money. But actually, I think it's quite an appealing vision. And if you look at the kind of, you know, people like Edward de Bono, the IBM dollar, that kind of thinking mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. companies would hold baskets of products and services rather than money as an intermediary, you can see that in a world of interconnected supercomputers, uh, which, I mean, that's what's at the other end of my phone, is a, is a supercomputer now. Uh, you can go back to that, and in many ways, it's more efficient because you don't need the intermediaries. Now, you can then take that to individuals and start to think, well, hold on a second. I'm saving up US dollars for my retirement. And when I retire, I'm going to need those US dollars to buy electricity. I have absolutely no idea what electricity is going to cost at that mm-hmm. point. But, mm-hmm. but, I, but I know roughly how much electricity I'm going to need, right? I need this to run my air conditioners and so on. So why don't I just put the electricity in my pension fund? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, why wouldn't I have a portfolio of commodities? And then you think, well, that's kind of complicated for a person to manage. Well, I wouldn't, a person wouldn't be managing it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the, you know, if you're, if you're really trying to think about the future of financial services, then you and I are not going to have really very much to do with it. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a pension fund and you're trying to sell a pension to me, it's not Frank trying to sell it to Dave. It's Frank's giant robot, artificial intelligence, world brain supercomputer trying to sell it to Dave's giant intelligence, mm-hmm. world brain mm-hmm. supercomputer, which Google is going to give me, by the way. Version two of TensorFlow just came out this week. Mm. I think that's funny, actually. A lot of these conferences I go to, because AI has taken over from blockchain as the, as the savior. They talk about AI as if only the bank's going, like the bank is going to use AI to do these chat bots and right. to make right. investments, decisions, or whatever. It's sort of forget it, but the customer is going to have AI too. And the customer's AI couldn't care less about your stupid advert or whether right. you sponsor the Super Bowl or <laughs> right. the fact yeah. that I can put a picture on my. My, my AI didn't pay any of that. Right. So, how you sell financial services to me 
cannot be the way they're sold now. It just can't because my robot doesn't care about all that stuff. All it cares about is reputation. Let me ask you one, one last uh, hard question, but, sure. but, but, but it'll be political and forgive me for making it overly simple. Well, if you're going to talk about it, all I would say is <laughs> the wall isn't going to work. And you, can, you should listen to the Brits about this because we tried this. Everyone's <laughs> forgotten this. But in Victorian times, the Brits built, my forefathers, built a wall all the way down the middle of India, 2,200 miles. I don't miles. know that. Yeah, that's we, interesting. We, we, we tried this whole wall thing, right? You remember that movie Gandhi? Oh, yeah, yeah. I just bought that. Yeah. yeah, you remember the like the huge demonstration at the beginning of that movie? Yeah. Do you remember what that demonstration was about? Was it, no, not the salt one. It's salt. The salt, okay. Right? So in, uh, in India, there was a big problem with smuggling. They used to smuggle all sorts of things, right? So the East India Company was you know, controlling the country, and they're very unhappy with smuggling of salt. They didn't care about opium, slaves, whatever. That was fine. Salt, very upset about because salt was taxed. That's right. That's and right. the British imposed iniquitous salt taxes on them. And so salt was smuggled. So in order to stop the smuggling, the British built a wall all the way down the middle of India. It, in the middle of the wall, unfortunately, there wasn't any rock to build walls out of or bricks or whatever. So... Um, uh, a very enterprising uh, Victorian civil servant, it happened to be a bird watcher, um, noticed that in the centre of India there were certain kinds of very thorny shrubs. And he, he conducted some experiments to discover which was the most thorny and dense of these shrubs. And that's what the British used instead of the wall in the middle. So we actually built the Great Hedge of India. Mm. So the wall was 2,000, but 800 miles of it was was 15 foot thick thorny hedge. Wow. And, you know, the impact that this had on smuggling was naught. I was going to say nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Indians who, who, you know, weren't playing with a straight bat on this thing, I don't think, I just threw the salt over the hedge. Right, right. Or, or put it on camels because the camels didn't care about the thorns. Right. So they they right. would just put it on camels and send the camels through. So we've tried that. All I'm saying is, you know, you need to look at it. We tried the whole wall thing. Really didn't work. Well, you know, and with it, I'm oh, that's what you weren't—you weren't going to ask me about that. that I, I don't oh. know. I, I want to ask you. The, 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 and again, we might have somebody burst in the room. So if anybody <laughs> hears any noise, just ignore it. But being a New Yorker, it, it, to, I like the, the communal point that you made. And, and, and in New York, you know, if you borrowed money from certain people, you didn't need to write it down. They just knew where to find you, and they knew where to charge you an appropriate rate for their money. And let me ask you a political question. And if I wear my hedge fund hat for a second, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a very, very strong correlation to uh, actors who make a decision to move off the US dollar and do something else. And there's a correlation to what ultimately ends up happening to them and with them. Here, if the, if the system is predicated on trust, I mean, are we just being incredibly idealistic thinking that a sovereign would actually abdicate control of, of currency, which has an implied funding rate to it that they've been able to, and we're leaving the entity nameless, but we don't know what, what, what country we're referring to. And, it, or is it a cost benefit analysis, back to your point to say, hey, if everybody comes over the border, we financially include, you know, 40% of the world's population in the system, is that worth foregoing having a, a, a reserve currency globally? I don't, I don't think abdication is the, the, well, I, I think what you could probably foresee is that of the 
of the values transacted around the world and of the of the stores of value held, the new digital technologies, what people loosely call tokenization, opens up the ability to transact using digital assets mm -hmm. very effectively, removing the need for this intermediary. Um, now, the US is is it's not entirely dependent on the seniorage of the US dollar, but the fact is there are a lot of, I mean, if you look at the dynamics of US currency in particular, it, I mean, it is an odd sort of fact of life that there are now more $100 bills in circulation than $1 bills. And since if you tried to spell 100, as Andy Warhol once said, mm -hmm. if you try and spend a $100 bill in the supermarket, they call the manager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to wonder quite what those $100 bills are doing. We don't have to stretch our imaginations. They're stuffed under mattresses in, in Latin America. Well, every one of those $100 bills that's stuffed under a mattress in Latin America is an interest-free loan to Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a great business to be in. You know? Well, that business, of course, is threatened because if you don't need to hold dollars anymore because you can hold you know, a, a thousandth of the Mona Lisa and two square foot of this building and a fraction of a gold bar, all in your safe, secure wallet, then you know clearly the, the the importance and relevance of those other stores of values is going to diminish. They're not going to abdicate. They're not going to go away. Mm -hmm. The relative mm -hmm. importance, I think, I think must change. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if if you're if you're holding U.S. hundred dollar bills, it's because of the liquidity, right? It's not because they appreciate in value over time. Mm -hmm. If something else can offer that liquidity which it seems to me from the early stages of investigation of, of, of this new token economy, they do, um, then clearly there'll be a shift. We'll keep our fingers crossed. And David, thank you again for your candidness, your humor, and uh, all the above today. We, never, we, we said a lot without saying specific names, so we came out pretty neutral today. Thank you very much, Mike. It was fun. <laughs> thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.